You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Have you ever, uh, you ever wish you could time travel? Anyone? It's a question. I don't know about you. I've always I've asked myself, where would I go if I could time travel? Where would you, where would you go? Would you go to like the distant past or maybe way distant future or maybe recent past, or maybe just a, a few years uh, uh, ahead of us? And, and why? Why would you go? Where would you go? Why? I, I have been fascinated with time travel ever since I was acquainted with a man by the name of Doc Brown and his protege, Marty McFly. First time I saw, first time I met Dr. Brown and Mr. McFly was in the year 1989. I was seven years old. And uh, I've been fascinated with time travel ever since. Uh, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, I'm alluding to a movie called Do- uh, Back to the Future, 80s hit movie. And uh, as I was studying the, the, the passage this week, there's an element of, of time travel that's happening. There, there's, there's something that happened way in the distant past that significantly solidifies something way in the future and then has incredible implications for how we live now in the present. I feel like, like First Peter, we're, we're time traveling a bit. Well, if, if, if you would time travel with me just one week in the past to last Sunday, Easter Sunday morning, Pastor Joe preached from John chapter 11, which is the passage of Scripture that tells us about the moment that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been sick, and Pastor Joe highlighted last week, I thought, uh, very helpful, in, in a very helpful manner, the fact that Jesus intentionally delayed showing up where Lazarus was to give enough time for Lazarus to die. And this wasn't in spite of Jesus' love for him. No, it was precisely because Jesus loved him that Jesus waited, allowing Lazarus to die. Because Jesus knew that would be the best long-term option. So he waited. City Church, Jesus loves you. And because he loves you, he may wait to intervene when you face difficult times. He may wait much longer than you want. And he may intentionally take you through unimaginable suffering and loss and pain and grief, but he will be with you. God will sustain you because of something he chose to do in the distant past. We should expect to face suffering and persecutions in this life. We should expect it. And that's why the book First Peter exists. And so today we're kicking off our new sermon series. We're going to be going through uh, the book First Peter over the next few weeks, God willing, And this book, this letter, is specifically written by the Apostle Peter to Christians that are seeking encouragement and wisdom as they seek to navigate seasons of suffering and persecution. As we read this letter, we get the sense that they have faced some suffering and persecution already, but we really get the sense that there's something bigger on the horizon. It's as if the Apostle Peter is warning them that something very bad is headed their way, and he's giving them wisdom and encouragement on how to navigate this coming season of persecution. So suffering and persecution are the main themes of this letter, or how to navigate that, 
However, before Peter really dives into that, he gives us this brief but powerful introduction. And we're going to look at that this morning. It's literally just two verses in 1 Peter. The end of verse 2 ends with a prayer from the Apostle Peter that grace and peace be multiplied to the Christians. So I want to pause and pray that. Father in heaven, we thank you for this letter. We are thankful that your spirit inspired this letter from Peter. We are grateful that by your providence this letter has been preserved and that all these years later we can read it and learn from it. And I ask you, Lord, that you would use our time together this morning as means of sanctification in our lives. Would you strengthen us and mold us to be more like Jesus? Lord, I ask, as Peter asked so many years ago, that grace and peace be multiplied to your people this morning. I ask all these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can flip them open or turn them on, whatever your preference is, and, and s- scroll with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Josiah just read it. I'm going to read the first verse again. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the first thing we learn here is that this letter is written by the apostle Peter, one of the protégés of Jesus, and it's being written to a bunch of Christians that are scattered all across the Roman Empire. Uh, amongst Bible scholars, there is a slight controversy as to precisely who this is being written to, but for our purposes this morning, I, I didn't think it's all that important. Uh, but if you want to do some reading on that, you can. And so Peter is writing this uh, to Christians scattered throughout different parts of the Roman Empire, and all of the regions that are mentioned here are all in modern-day Turkey. And he refers to the Christians in this region as elect exiles. So immediately I ask myself, what does it mean to be elect, and what does it mean to be an exile? I want to tackle exile first. The ESV uh, that we were reading from, the English Standard Version, uses the word exile, which is fine, but, but based on a study of the, the original Greek words, I'm not convinced that exile is actually the best word. I, I, there are some other translations that use some other words that I think maybe are, are a little bit better. Uh, the New American Standard uses the word strangers. It says, those who reside as strangers. The New Living Translation renders it this way, God's chosen people living as foreigners. So stranger, foreigner, I think are maybe more appropriate. Maybe even the word refugee could be used in this context. Peter is writing to a group of people living in a land that is strange to them because it's not their homeland. It's not where their primary citizenship is lies. We as Christians live in this world, but this world is strange to us, or at least it ought to be. If this world feels good to you in every way, if you feel really at home in this world, in this land, there's probably a problem with how you approach the gospel or how it's informed your life. We ought to be strangers or sojourners in this land. Things ought to just feel not quite right. This is not the way it ought to. And in some cases, a lot worse than not quite right. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. 
So we are exiles. We're strangers in this land called earth. But not only that, not only are we exiles, strangers, pilgrims, we are also elect, which simply means chosen. You were chosen. God has elected us. He has chosen us. He has selected those whom he would invite into his own family. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the Jewish people are often referred to as the elect of God. Multiple times in this letter, Peter is borrowing language directly from the Old Testament to refer to Christians. So we are elect, the elect exiles. Peter then goes on in the next verse to describe these elect exiles. And he gives three key phrases that I want to hone in on this morning. And in doing so, he demonstrates incredible unity amongst the members of the Trinity. Look at verse 2 with me. This is speaking of the elect exiles. That they, are, <clears throat> that they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. These three prepositional phrases are describing the term elect. We are elected in accordance with the foreknowledge of God. We are elected in the sanctification of the Spirit. We are, and one of the reasons that we are elect is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So let's look at each of these three. The first one I want to look at and one we'll spend the most time this morning is the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of of God the Father. And this is where we do a little bit of time travel back to a moment in eternity past before the foundations of the world. When God determined whom he would elect. When God determined who he is choosing. Now there are some people that say the foreknowledge of God means that God looked down the corridor of time into the future and that God saw who would choose him and then therefore he responded by electing those people. That's, some people articulate the foreknowledge of God in that way, saying, yes, God chooses whom will be in his family, but he do, does it based on who he knows would have chosen him anyway. That's sort of the way it's articulated often. Um, there are many genuine Christians that believe this. There are many people who I believe genuinely love God, they love the Bible, they're genuine believers, and they articulate the foreknowledge of God in this way. But I must boldly say this morning that their conclusion and their understanding of this phrase is misguided. And I'll explain why. I'll give you three reasons why I think their understanding of foreknowledge is flawed. Number one, God has never looked into the future and learned anything. That's never happened. This understanding of foreknowledge assumes that God doesn't know who's going to pick him. So he has to look into the future, observe what's going on, learn, oh, that person's going to choose me. And now I elect him into my family. As if God doesn't already know everything. This understanding of foreknowledge violates and undermines the omniscience of God. God knows everything. The Bible is clear over and over and over and over again. There are dozens of passages of Scripture that make it clear that God knows all. Therefore, there is no reason for God to look into the future and learn anything. The type of time travel with foreknowledge is not looking toward the future, but we look back to the past when God determined what he wanted to do. Second, 
if God waited to select others based on who would choose him, um, he'd be waiting a really long time because no humans would ever choose God. The Bible is very clear on that. The prophet Isaiah tells us that we are all like sheep. We've gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans that no one seeks God. None of us do. If God waited to see who was going to pick him, he would be waiting a long time. Jesus knew this. He taught this actually in John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Human beings are incapable of doing that thing that some people are waiting for or claim that God is waiting for. Later in John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So God has to act first to give this person the ability to then to choose God. God has to first do it. God takes the first action. Third, the third reason why I think that understanding of foreknowledge is flawed is because the word foreknowledge does not mean foresight. The Greek word here that we translate as foreknowledge in 1 Peter is a very personal word. It's referring to people, not data. Persons, not information. Meaning it always refers to whom God knows, not what God knows. It refers to a personal love relationship. This is the same language used in the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, to refer to a man and his wife. As a man knows his wife, so God knows those ahead of time whom will be a part of his family. In Genesis chapter 4, this language is used to speak of Adam and Eve. In Matthew chapter 1, this language is used to speak of Joseph and Mary. In Genesis 18, this is the language God uses to refer to Abraham, in whom, with whom he has a relationship, a friendship. This is not God looking into the future, seeing what people do. No, this is God knowing people before they even live on planet Earth. In Amos chapter 3, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says to them, you only have I known. Does that mean the only country that God is familiar with is Israel? He's an absent-minded professor and doesn't know the other countries on the planet? This can't possibly be referring to an awareness of information. When he looks at Israel, he's saying, I know you. Oh, I know everyone, but I know you differently. I have loved you differently than I love the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. I set my eyes on you, Israel. Only you and no one else do I have my eyes on. He is saying to Israel, I foreknew you. I chose you and I loved you long before you existed and made any choices. I chose you. When God is talking about foreknowledge, he's talking about foreloving. And when he says that we as Christians are foreknown by God, it means that long before we existed, God knew us, he loved us, and he chose us. When we see that he has foreknown us, then we know that he longs for intimacy with us. And he did what needed to be done to ensure that we would be in an intimate covenant friendship relationship with the creator of the universe. Here in this opening verse of this letter, God is saying that there's a group of people that for a very long time, long before they even existed, long before the foundations of the world, he chose them. He chose them to be believers in Jesus. And that is the thing that enables them to believe in God, not the other way around. City's Church, 
that's you. If you are here this morning, you are a believer, he foreknew you. Before the foundations of the world, he saw you and he chose you. He says, I want that guy in my family. I want her in my family. He chose you. So we are the elect exiles. Before the world began, God singled you out. He circled your name, and he said, I have chosen to love you. It's important to remember that God made this choice unconditionally. There was nothing in us that made him want to elect us. We want to be very careful that we don't become arrogant about this. There was nothing in me that was lovely and attractive to God that he would choose me. No, God chose me unconditionally. We do not know fully why or how God chooses whom he chooses. We don't. That, that, that's something God knows, and that's for only God to know. God is free to do whatever he pleases because he is God. There are some people who don't like this. They say, well, I don't like the idea that God is choosing. And to that, I would say... <clears throat> If you don't like something God has done, it is not God who is wrong. If your opinion is different than God's opinion, it is not God who ought to change his mind. God is not wrong. In addition, there's a lot of people that downplay the gravity and ugliness of sin. There's a lot of people that say, this is not, we're not so bad that God would would need to do this. And the scripture says otherwise. We are all sinners. We've all defied the living God. We are all corrupt. We, are all, we have all been hostile toward God. We, are, we have all blasphemed him, his name. We were all born on God's bad side. We were on the naughty list. And we deserve death and hell. We all deserve condemnation. We all deserve, 100% of us, the full wrath of God. As hip-hop artist Lecrae has said, we are mere sinners owed nothing but a fierce hand. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, chose you chose you. He has chosen to intervene in the human story to save some, and for that we say, praise be to God. He was under no obligation to save any. So this first phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God, helps us understand you are chosen by God because he already knew you and chose to love you long before you ever existed. The second phrase in this verse, speaking of the elect exiles, is in the sanctification of the Spirit. Here we learn that the Spirit of God is the source of our sanctification. That The Father chooses whom he has foreknown. He, he chooses that, and then the Spirit cooperates with the Father to bring sanctification to those the Father has foreknown. They work together in tandem. The perfect team, working in cooperation, unity, harmony. The members of the Godhead working together to bring forth the salvation of humans. The Father foreknows those who will be in his family. The Spirit does the work to bring them into the fold. The Holy Spirit brings us to faith in Christ, and the Holy Spirit enables us to be converted. 
in our natural state. We're not capable of choosing. So the Holy Spirit does a sanctifying surgery in our hearts and gives us the ability to respond to God's love of us. The Spirit gives us the ability to believe something we do not have on our own accord, but he doesn't stop there. The Spirit then continues this work. He is the chief architect of our sanctification throughout the course of our lives. The Holy Spirit guides us through the lifelong process of becoming more holy, becoming more and more like Jesus day by day by day. I don't expect to eradicate all of my sin on this side of eternity, but I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, know that I want to sin less today than I did yesterday. And I want to love God more tomorrow than I do today. I want to ever be growing in my sanctification. How does this impact my suffering? As we face suffering and persecution, how does it impact? We know that there is no situation that the Spirit cannot use in our lives for our good and for our growth. Because we know the Spirit is the chief architect, He is the one that gave us the ability to believe when we were incapable of doing that, then He is the one that will give us the ability to overcome sin over the course of our lives. No matter what I face in this life, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, the Spirit of God will use it in my life for my good. Very famous verse many of us are familiar with, Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. This leads us to the third phrase in that verse that Peter gives us describing the elect exiles. And there's two parts to this phrase. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. The first part of that phrase feels sort of straightforward to me. I've been elected so that I would be obedient to Christ. God chose me, and and one of the purposes is that I would be obedient to Christ. I would respond to Christ. Now, we can study the Gospels, and there's lots of things that Jesus has taught us in the Scriptures. uh, But I think think pretty much everything Jesus taught, we can kind of sum up into kind of two main thoughts. I, I think. We can sum up in two main thoughts. One is from John 14, the other is from John 15. John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is saying, believe in me. We ought to respond in in obedience. We should obey that command to believe in Jesus. And so Peter is saying that the reason why you were elected is to obey Jesus primarily to respond to the offer of salvation. In the next chapter, John 15 and verse uh, verse 16, it says Jesus says you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Love one another is the other command I believe we can wrap almost we can sum up almost all the teachings of Jesus in those two things. Believe in him Love one another. So when Peter says you've been elected to obey Jesus, in essence, we could say we've been elected to believe in Jesus and love one another. We are elect exiles so that we would obey Jesus. So recap, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. His foreknowing, foreloving of us. We are chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit by the work of the Spirit. We are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ so that we would genuinely believe in him and genuinely love one another. And finally, we are chosen for the sprinkling with his blood. 
the phrase that Peter uses here is, is a little unique. There is, there's some disagreement amongst Bible scholars and theologians as to precisely what this, this phrase means. But most Bible scholars uh, tend to agree that this phrase is most likely alluding to Exodus 24. And in chapter 24, this is where the Old Covenant is being officially inaugurated. And in this chapter, Moses is, is giving the law of God to the people. And at this inauguration, the people are committing themselves to be loyal to God. They are pledging their loyalty to the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. Moses, or, and a part of this inauguration is uh, animal sacrifices. And so when they bring the animals together, Moses drains all of the blood from the animals, and he sprinkles half of the, the blood on the altar, and then he goes before the people, and he sprinkles the other half of the blood on the people. And this sprinkling of blood in this moment is the symbol that the, that the covenant has now been inaugurated, and it's complete. So with this in mind, understanding Exodus 24 in the background, we have a better understanding of what Peter is alluding to here in this verse. We, we enter into a covenant with God that he, that he officiates and brings us into. The Father determined we would be in that covenant. The Spirit brings us in. And Jesus comes to earth to allow for our sins to be paid for by the shedding of his blood. And when Peter says that we've been elected for the sprinkling of blood, it means that we are being elected so that the blood of Jesus is applied to us. You've been elected so that your sins would be forgiven and wiped clean. How does this impact my suffering? As we go through 1 Peter, there's a couple ways that I think about suffering in light of this. Number one, suffering hurts, but it reminds me Excuse me, but reminders of my guilt being alleviated in the midst of pain brings me great joy in the midst of suffering. In this life, when I face pain, it hurts, it's real. But in the, in the midst of that, if I am reminded that I have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, that I have been wiped clean and forgiven, joy is birthed in me even in the face of suffering. And so being reminded of this while I am suffering is essential. Number two, number one, the second way this impacts my understanding of suffering is because Jesus has already defeated death, I am free to be weak. I don't have to put on a front. So often when we are facing suffering, it, it's attached, attached to it our feelings of shame. Even if it's not necessarily caused by a sinful choice, we often still feel embarrassed to be honest about some of the things we are facing. Or we, we want to pretend that we are stronger than we really are. But the fact that Jesus has already defeated death on our behalf means I don't have to put on a front. One pastor put it this way, amid our glorious ruin, Jesus is strong, so we are free to be weak. There's no need to hide anything or pretend to be strong. Jesus already won. So we're free to be honest. And we're even free to lose because we know that Jesus has already won. Jesus was a somebody, so we can be a nobody. Jesus was extraordinary, so we don't have to feel the pressure. We can be free to be ordinary. Jesus has succeeded on our behalf, so we are free to fail in the midst of pain. The third thing that this impacts my suffering is the sprinkling of Jesus' blood is a profound reminder that redemptive things come from suffering. Jesus suffered, and from that comes the salvation of many. 
It's a reminder to me that when I suffer, the Holy Spirit will use that to bring about redemptive things in my life and the lives of those around me. The Father did this in eternity past. And that solidifies our future of where we will be, which informs how we live now in the present. In closing, I say this. Whenever you are suffering or facing persecution of any kind, whether it seems significant or mild or somewhere in between, remember this. The members of the Trinity, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they are cooperating together to sustain you. The Father foreknew you. The Spirit sanctifies you. The Son cleanses you through his blood. And that brings us to this table, the greatest meal that we partake in every week. Jesus shed his blood. He suffered on the cross. He made a way for our sins to be forgiven. And that's why we come to this table every single week, to remind ourselves, to remember of what Christ has done on our behalf. Our pastors are going to come in just a moment. We're going to hand out the, the elements, the bread and the cup. This is open to all elect exiles here this morning. If you are an elect exile, if you have trusted in Christ, feel free to partake this morning. However, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, or if you're not quite sure if you are a genuine follower, I would ask that you let the elements pass. And instead of taking communion this morning, I implore you, take Christ instead. This is the body and blood of Jesus. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.